Today is Friday, July 6, 2018. Time for episode 55 of the Barnhart Podcast. It was Independence Day week here in the United States, and I don't know if that goes along with independence from the Me Too movement or something like that, but there's some, been something in the news recently about Cardinal McCarrick and the Me Too culture. And the, the question you put in the notes, what kind of man doesn't beat the crap out of another man who touches him sexually if he wasn't into that? Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about this story, but I have a feeling it's going to be a little, I'll just let you fill it in. This, is, this episode is going to be rated, I suspect probably rated R. I mean, even PG-13, I don't think, is going to be sufficient for it. Because, you know, we're going to be talking about these sodomites and all this stuff. Um, but it needs to be addressed because it's really, it's, I'm, I'm surprised at the, that the traction is holding as well as it is in the news cycle. But this, there's this, um, this cardinal, uh, McCarrick, Theodore Ted McCarrick, who was... Um, Cardinal Archbishop of Washington, D.C. Um, he's old enough now, I think he's 88, something like that, that he's retired, but he's still active. And he's still <laughs> active in scare quotes. I don't even, <laughs> whatever that implies, it implies. Um, uh, but he's, he's still active, he's still around. And it, it's, it's another one of these examples of this open secret culture Everyone knew that this guy was a fag. This guy basically carried on openly, and the the accusations that came against him were finally, I mean, they were decades and decades old, but it was about um, him actually sexually assaulting um, um, an under-18, I think, altar server, and that's what they're going after him for. But everyone has known, and again, again, folks, I just, I can't, I can't emphasize this enough, this business of how these open secrets, not just in the church that all these priests and bishops and cardinals and all these guys are fags. I mean, not even that. Look at the Weinstein thing. Everybody knew. Look at the Clintons. Everybody knew. Look at, you know, the corporate world on and on and on and on. As our as our society, as our culture goes down the toilet, what happens is you've got all of these quote unquote open secret dynamics where people are just openly committing sin, but everyone else is so effeminate and everyone else is so concerned with maintaining their career tracks, their social circles, whatever the hell it is that these people carry on with almost complete impunity, completely openly. Um, what we discussed last week is the piece that I wrote a couple, three weeks ago now, a couple weeks ago, I guess, about the gymnastics coach. The guy was just openly abusing these these tiny little girls um, verbally, verbally and physically in front of their parents and nobody says anything. And this whole open secret dynamic, um, that's what's really being exposed in all of this, in the Me Too movement, in this business of, um, you know, what's going on in the church and all, and specifically all these fag clerics and prelates. It isn't, it isn't necessarily, the, the dynamic that isn't being exposed is that these people exist and there are all these sexual abusers and perverts and all this. What's being exposed in our culture right now is the open secret nature of all this, that it's, and I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but that it's 
all of us, we've all been standing by watching this, turning a blind eye, shrugging our shoulders, saying, well, there's nothing I can do, blah, blah, blah. In all of these dynamics, whether it be in the corporate world or whatever, whatever the hell it is, and we're all being exposed, the broad culture in general, the post-Christian neo-pagan culture that we now live in, it is being exposed for what it is, and that is completely tolerant of, of criminal activity. Truly, truly criminal activity. Some of it could even be described as as capital level offenses. And I mean, if you if you're like me, I think any sexual abuse of a child is a capital offense. Um, and then you know, over 18s, and we're going to get into this in a second. That's that's where it gets that's where it gets weird. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of sodomites, it, it is a sodomy is a capital offense in, in the divine law. Um, it's clear that this is grave. And I think that, that, that recidivists in, you know, in, in a healthy culture in which Jesus Christ is the King recidivist sodomites should first be, obviously they should first be prosecuted under anti-obscenity laws and all that. And then if they keep if they keep getting arrested and they, and they were to keep getting being convicted of engaging in sodomy, I think after a while, even if it's between adults, you know, I mean, the, one of the, the main dynamics of how sodomites create new sodomites is they're chasing after and they are preying vampirically on 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. They're, they're preying on, on young adult men. That's how you get the next generation of, of sodomites. They're vampires. How can this not be capital? You're not just going after somebody's body, which you are, because it's a, you know, it's an intrinsically violent, disgusting, filthy, degrading physically dangerous thing to do to shove things up your up your backside or to be engaged in any way in the eating or consumption of fecal matter which that's all intrinsic to to male sodomy especially see i told you this was going to be a rated r episode um but going after somebody's soul and i think that is the primary core reason why sodomy is a, a capital offense in the divine law it's because it's going after people's souls. That's the issue here. So, you know, there's going to have to be adult conversations about all this. Um, and presumably after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, some there will be some sort of uh, proper guidance that is issued for the human race to, you know, reset, rebuild itself. And these are going to have to be deemed capital offenses and dealt with with that level of seriousness. Um, and like I said, it just goes without saying you do anything to a child. It, it should be, it should be a capital crime period. But what we're talking about specifically here is this Cardinal McCarrick. Finally, somebody comes forward and says, look, this guy sexually assaulted me when I was a, when I was an altar boy, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then all the stories start coming out about this, this guy McCarrick has been just habitually chasing after seminarians and after young priests for his entire career 
everyone knows it. It's an open secret. You can go down the list of these of these prelates, and we're going to talk specifically about prelates, which means you know bishops, bishops and cardinals, um, and go down the list. And just everybody knows who these open fags are, and nobody will talk about it. Um, and what we're also going to talk about is is what the origin of all of this is, and why it is that so many of these prelates, especially in the United States today, are the, the percentage of prelates today that are homosexual is just s- through the roof. It's far higher even than the percentage of just Novus Ordo priests that are gay. It's, it's a way higher percentage than that. And we'll discuss why. But it, in terms of our opening, so all these anecdotes start coming out about this decades and decades of Cardinal McCarrick inviting seminarians and mo- the, the, the germane anecdotes here are about seminarians, invites seminarians over to his house. And then he always invites one too many relative to the number of beds that he has. Oh, for sleepovers, you know, because grown adult men totally have sleepovers like, you know, like eight year old girls. Um, so he invites them all over for sleepovers, but there's always one more seminarian than there are bed spaces. And so inevitably what happens is that, you know, someone would have to share a bed with, with Uncle Ted. And that's what he told him to call him, call me Uncle Ted. So there's one anecdote in particular in which the guy said, we're all sitting around in the living room and we're watching TV or watching a movie on, on TV or something. And McCarrick uh, sits next to or lays down next to a seminarian and they basically start engaging in uh, foreplay. I guess that's the word to use. They, you know, they start, he's, McCarrick starts kissing on him and, you know, foreplay activities right there in front of all of the other seminarians. Now, this is, this is the first, you know, record scratch, slam on the brakes, I got to call bullshit on this. This this makes no sense. I was shocked. I was I was paralyzed by by shock. Oh bullshit. Any normal heterosexual man, if he's in a room with other men and two of those men start making out, no, I'm sorry. You don't sit there and and pretend that you were, you know, uncomfortable and and frozen and paralyzed with fear and quote just tried to focus on watching tv or watching the movie bullshit if you are a normal heterosexual man and two other dudes that you're hanging out with start making out you you jump your ass up you start screaming and yelling what the blank is going on what in the hell do you think you're doing get me the hell out of here you filthy fags i don't want anything to do with this we're leaving that is how all normal heterosexual men respond when some creepy sodomite crap like that starts going down but wait it gets even worse. We go further into these into these anecdotes where the ones who who McCarrick seminarians who McCarrick actually crawled into bed with and started, you know, instigating sodomitical sexual activity. And their testimony is, 
I froze. There was nothing I could do. I was so shocked by what was happening. I was completely paralyzed with fear. Bullshit. Bullshit. You're a heterosexual man. You're psychologically normal. Even, you know, there are even plenty of men who probably are screwed up and have experienced same-sex attraction to one degree or another, who still, if some, if some creepy old bastard like McCarrick started, started kissing on them, would jump up and say, what in the hell are you doing? Get off of me. Or punch him. Throw an elbow. Punch him in the punch him in the guts, punch him in the kidneys, kick him in the balls, do whatever you have to do. What in the hell is this? Are we falling for this? I was paralyzed. I didn't know what to do. You know what? It's like it's like the women with the Harvey Weinstein. I was paralyzed. I didn't know what to do. No, no, not buying it. You made a calculated decision. You made a calculated decision that you were gonna put up with that. Or let's be honest. Some of them wanted it. Some of them wanted it. Someone said, "Oh ho, here we go. I'm going to get in good. I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be a sex partner of of an archbishop or a cardinal. Then not only am I going to be in with him, but I'll be able to blackmail him. I'll have blackmail to hold over his head. And I've written about this before. They're all blackmailable because all sodomitical relationships are about objectification and they're about a power play in both directions. The more dominant, so in this case McCarrick, just because of his power, the more the more dominant is is feeling a power play and a blackmailability and a manipulation over the more submissive partner. But don't don't uh, doubt for a second the submissive or less powerful of 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 the two is also working a, a blackmail dynamic because now it's, okay, I'm in good, I'm in this lavender mafia now, I'm a member of this, and I've, I have blackmail material on the Cardinal Archbishop of Washington, D.C., or whatever, whatever his position was at the time. Don't doubt it for a second. So all these, all these guys come forward and say, Oh, I was just paralyzed with fear. Don't believe it for a second. Don't believe it for a second. Any normal man that, that garbage starts happening and you just start, you just start wailing, man. You just start throwing fists and then, and then we'll figure it out afterwards. Uh, but, but you get, you get that filthy, disgusting faggot off of you period, full stop, then it's a question of, do you call the cops? I've been sexually assaulted. Do, what, what do you do? But no, all these guys are, I was paralyzed with fear because they were working it. They were working the whole sodomite thing, just like those chicks who Harvey Weinstein invites you up to his hotel room and you think he just wants to talk and everybody knows in Hollywood what he is and everybody knows what he's up to and everybody knows that he's a rapist and he invites you up to, to his hotel room and you say, oh, I had absolutely no idea. I was absolutely shocked when he appeared naked in front of me. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. You made a calculated decision, woman. You made a calculated decision that you were going to go up, you were going to put yourself in that situation and you were going to advance your career. You are going to advance your career. Sorry, 
a form of prostitution. It's a form of prostitution. And that's the problem in all this. So it really pisses me off when we're talking about these seminarians as if they're, you know, pure lily white victims. Hell no. Hell no. Most of them probably entered the seminary fantasizing about something like this. They were sodomites going into the seminary. They were looking to, to either to both hook up with other cute boys in the seminary and or fantasy fantasy looking to hook up with a, a cleric or prelate in a position of power so that they could advance their career, um, get all the perks and benefits and have blackmail material to hold to hold over powerful men again to help them advance advance their their clerical career and so forth. Sorry, not buying any of it. So that all just has to be said. Normal people throw fists. Super nerd, guy thoughts on that? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. <laughs> Poor you. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've had a little bit of a cold this week, so yeah, it's 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 a combination of that plus it's kind of a revolting topic. I don't have yeah. any experience in Novosoto seminaries. I was I was only in the Navy. Uh, all jokes aside, there um, <laughs> there there was plen- there there was talk on on the ships of of certain uh, people who were into certain proclivities, but. My understanding was it, it, you had to be open to it. And I wonder if, um, in the case of the seminarians, it, w- it wasn't just completely random, uh, that if you were a serious seminarian and you weren't kicked out for saying the rosary or something like that, mm-hmm. that the, mm-hmm. the, uh, Cardinal Archbishop wasn't going to invite you over unless he thought you were vulnerable or open to it in one way or another. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great point. He's not going to bring guys over that he, that you can just tell that, that he knows he, that he's going to get punched in the kidney um, or get an uppercut to the jaw if he tries anything with. They're not, they're not stupid. Um, and so, of course, and of course these seminaries were absolutely filled. There, were, there was, you know, a, a committee, an entrance committee, a vocations committee at the door that was actively screening heterosexual Orthodox believing Catholic men out. And oftentimes who's complicit in this are these lesbian dyke nuns who they, they want the sodomites. They want the fags in because the fags will tell them whatever they want. The fags will tell them, yes, we want female ordination. Yes, we want this. Yes, we want that. The fags will tell the dyke nuns whatever they want to hear, those witches. They're also manning the door. They're oftentimes manning the door of these seminaries. Pun intended, and they're the one- manning the Go door. Ahead. Pun intended, manning the door. But, yep, 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 totally, totally, totally. And that they're there. So, of, of course, I mean, it was almost impossible. There was about a 20-year window where it was basically impossible to be a normal, heterosexual, orthodox, believing, and blah, don't even mention the word pious, Catholic, and to get through seminary um, because there were just so many... They were just constantly looking to weed all of them out. All this talk, I mean, people like me have been saying this for years and over and over again. And I think, I still think there are a lot of people who read when I and other people write about the Freemasonic communist infiltration of the church 
in the in the early part of the 20th century, which then came to full flower in the 1960s with Vatican II, with Paul VI and all of this, and they got power. We're not we're not being kooky conspiracy theorists. We're not using um, we're not using hyperbole when we say things like this. We're we're not you know trying to use language that that's orders of magnitude worse than what the situation is. If anything, we're understating it. The church was infiltrated by communists and Freemasons or Freemasons and communists who then specifically were on a crusade to recruit as many sodomites into the priesthood as they possibly could in order to destroy the church from the inside out. This is not hyperbole. This is not exaggeration. This is not cuckoo pants conspiracy theory. You're seeing it all play out right now. We can take this a step further and we can include Satanists in these ranks. And now this trend, this um, segues specifically into Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Okay. How all these people are now, you know, this news. How did this man McCarrick, how was he ever made a bishop? How was he ever elevated to bishop? How was he ever given any sort of advancement in the church? And, you know, I just rub my forehead and just, okay, we'll explain this again. This goes back to Cardinal Joseph Bernadine. Cardinal Joseph Bernadine was recruited as an undergrad majoring in pre-med out of at the University of South Carolina in Charleston. So he goes there. His family is, you know, nominally Catholic. He's never shown any real interest in the church at all. He goes to USC in the late 40s or early 50s pre-med. And lo and behold, comes home in, I think, the first semester of his sophomore year and announces to his family that he has a vocation and he's going to be a Catholic priest. And they're all just flabbergasted because this is this is completely out of left field. What happened? Co- uh, J- Joseph Bernadine entered into the Charleston, South Carolina gay scene and was almost certainly recruited out of the gay bars in in around Charleston, South Carolina, by Satanists. You say, oh, Anne, you're going off the deep end. Well, if, if you want to believe that, you can believe that. But, you know, the evidence here is is pretty strong. This guy was recruited out of the Rome, uh, excuse me, there's <laughs> a Freudian slip, Recruit, recruited out of the, the Charleston gay scene by Satanists because gay bars up until just not too terribly long ago were the prime recruiting ground for Satanists. Most Satanists, by definition, are sex perverts. It's, it's like part of the deal. It's, in fact, part of the black mass is sexually perverted acts, man on man, um, rape and rape and sometimes murder of females and also of children of both sexes as part of the black mass. Sexual perversion, by definition, is part and parcel with Satanism. So the Satanists would go into the into the gay scenes in various places. 
in decades past. And that's where they would recruit people. So what happened is they recruit Joseph Bernadine out of the gay scene, tell him, look, we want you to enter the Catholic Church, become a priest. You will be fast tracked. We will send you straight up. You're going to be one of the youngest bishops ever. You can have all of the kinky, nasty, sodomitical, um, pedophilic sex you want. You will live like a prince for the rest of your life. And you will be inside the church to service the satanic Freemasonic agenda. And you will be an extremely powerful man. And Bernadine said yes and entered into into a satanic coven, was put into the seminary and sure enough was sent straight up the ladder. He was a bishop before he was 40 um, and not being anything particularly remarkable in terms of his studies at all. Not at all. Uh, why did that happen? <laughs> With, for the reasons I just explained, because he was an, he was an infiltrator. He was there to be an infiltrator. So he goes up, he's made a bishop. Then, you know, long story short, he's made, um, he eventually ends up being the, the Archbishop of Chicago. He's made a cardinal. He's head of the U.S. Bishops Conference. But most importantly, what, what Bernadine did over the course of like 30 years, almost 30 years, um, from like 1968 until his death in, I think he died in 96. He died in the mid-90s. Um, what he did is he absolutely 100% controlled who was elevated to, to the episcopacy, to being a bishop in the United States. Bernadine completely controlled that. So let's stop and think about this. You've got Bernadine, who is a Satanist. And by the way, if you read Malachi Martin's Windswept House, the um, it opens with recounting the tale of something that the anniversary of which just happened, which was the dual black masses, which one was performed in the Pauline Chapel in the Vatican. And at the same time, a black mass was performed I think it was in the Carolinas on the east coast of the United South, States. South Carolina, yeah, I've, I've got South, the. Yeah, it was South Carolina. I've got the the tradi- I was gonna say I've got the Traditio page up here where they're they're doing the, uh, the the mapping of the fictional names to to the real names. So exactly, yeah, and Bernadine's is like so. What what is Bernadine's? It is so thinly veiled. Oh, they're all um, they're all thinly veiled. They're like, all uh, thinly veiled, but Bernadine's like, is just Cardinal, like uh, Leonard Leonardine. Leonard D. <laughs> so, okay. So they do these dual black masses and this, this actually happened. It's the, it was a, a right, a satanic right, the enthroning of Satan inside the Vatican. And they did it in the Pauline chapel, not the Sistine chapel, but the Pauline chapel over in South Carolina at exactly the same time. Bernadine is by this time, he is a, he's just a priest. He, I don't think he's a bishop yet, but he's hes a priest. He is one of the celebrants, if you call it that, of this black mass. And he raped the little girl on, on the satanic altar. Um, and I think Malachi Martin calls her Agnes. Here's what, here's what's interesting. In 2014, I believe, I received an email from Agnes and yes, I, I the real name, her real name was there and I was able to vet and, and see, see to it that this person 
yes, was who she was really saying she was. And she 100% confirmed that, yes, it was Joseph Bernadine who raped me on the altar during a black mass. And you say, well, how in the world did this coven of Satanists get, get this little girl? Her father, Agnes's father, was in the coven, and he delivered her to the coven to be raped in this black mass. Um, and what you know, they didn't kill her; they just raped her. Um, and this is and this is done in the context of the black mass at at the same time that the consecration would be done, and it always involves um, a consecrated host. It involves an actual consecrated host, the Eucharist, and then horrible, unspeakable things, which we will not even begin to go into, are done in the context of the black mass, in the context of the rape of whoever it is. And and sometimes it also involves the murder of the person too, obviously. But in this case, it didn't. They didn't kill the little girl. It's just uh, Bernadine and I think a couple of others also it was a gang rape, basically. A side note, if I may, this is one of the reasons, one of the, one of the big objections that is, is uh, sometimes made to communion in the hand. When communion is given on the tongue, the host tends to dissolve quickly. Yeah. And so you can't maintain it. But if communion is given in the hand and you don't put it in your mouth, you could walk back to the pew, put it in your pocket or whatever, and, and leave. That's a consecrated host and... I have heard that Satanists have been taking advantage of the fact that anybody can walk up to communion, receive communion in the hand, and then just walk right out of church. Yep, absolutely. It happens all the time. And people who are sacristans or do cleaning or whatever in Novus Ordo parishes report that they find hosts all the time. They find hosts in the pews. They find hosts stuck into um, hymnals and missiles in the pew as like bookmarkers and things like that. They find them on the floor. They find hosts all the time. This happens all the time. Um, And so exactly, that's like Super Nerd said, this is one of the reasons. Um, It's not the top reason, but it is a massive, huge reason why communion should only be given on the tongue. Um, you can spit it out, but it's so obvious when you, when a, a host is put in so, on somebody's tongue, they like super nerd said, if you've never, if you've never received the Eucharist, um, then it, it, it is a wafer, but boy, as soon as, as soon as it's in your mouth, you know, there's moisture in your mouth and it starts to soften almost immediately and get kind of floppy. And so in order to, in order to receive on the tongue and then clandestinely re- retain it somehow, you would have to almost immediately do this extremely um, obvious physical maneuver of, of spitting it back out, essentially, and taking it back in your hand. I shouldn't be using the, the pronoun it. I should be using him because it's our Lord. Um, you'd have to, to spit him back out. I mean, that's really obvious when someone does that. It would be pretty apparent. So yes, receiving on the tongue, not just because, you know, only the consecrated hands of a priest, only the consecrated hands of a priest should ever be able to touch uh, the Eucharist, precisely because of this, you know, this this reverence and this spousal relationship that exists there, and we'll get into that a bit later too, Um but it's a security. It's it actually is definitely a security measure, and sadly, this this happens all the time. And yes, it's very easy for Satanists to get a hold of 
of hosts, and they do. And this, this is also why chapels are locked when, when uh, there aren't people expected to be there. It's so people cannot walk in, and it's not just stealing the, the golden vessels and things like that. It's so they can't steal consecrated hosts. Exactly. That's why tabernacles all have keys and why the tabernacle should be locked and the key should be safely, safely locked away in the sacristy um, at all times. Even when the church is open, the tabernacle is locked. Um, exactly. Security, security, security. And it's, it's for our Lord. It's not, you know, the, the, the chalices and, and the chiborium and all of that. That's our ciborium. That, that's all trivial. That's all trivial what we're talking about here is security for our Lord in, in the most blessed sacrament. So, um, back to this, this black mass, they rape Agnes. Um, Bernadine rapes Agnes. Agnes sends me an email in like 2014 and says, absolutely 100%. I, I worked with Martin. I communicated with him. I told him exactly what happened. And as he wrote it in the introduction of windswept house. I mean, I, she was, she was obviously the eyewitness. And so she said, it is a very, very accurate representation of what happened to me. And she said something very beautiful. She said, even, even through all of that, even while I was actually being raped, I never lost my faith. I never lost my faith subsequent to that because I had a perfect understanding that who these men were and what they were doing had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ and his holy church. And I think that's that's a really um, relevant lesson for all of us today to be able to make that distinction and and be able to look at these things that are going on and being able to clearly draw that line between the institutional church, which which um, Bernadine absolutely was a member of, and all of those guys in Rome, clearly, who were doing the, the Black Mass in the Vatican. Clearly, that was all, you know, people who were in the institutional church, but being able to clearly draw that line and say, that is not, that is not the same thing as the supernatural church. And it certainly has nothing to do with our Lord. I think, I think she was clearly given a specific grace. It's, you know, there's the saying where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Well, can you imagine can you imagine how much grace was abounding for this little 10-year-old girl as she's being gang-raped in a black mass? Um, you know that our Lord has to be, you know, making sure. And I think, I think that, that that's what happened to her. I think the fact that even, as she said, in the moment while it was happening, she had a very clear, unwavering understanding of what the distinction was between what these horrible bad men were doing and what our Lord and his church was. And, you know, we, we all need to think on that and say, you know, if that little 10-year-old girl, if she can understand that, then we all have to be able to draw that same line and make that same distinction too. And I think especially in the, in the fallout of this McCarrick reportage, seen a lot of people, a lot of people in comment threads saying things like, you know what, I'm done. 
I'm done with with the institutional church. I'm I'm or I'm done with the Catholic Church. I'm done with the Catholic Church. I'm going to go be Eastern Orthodox. I'm going to go be this. I'm going to go be that. Or I'm just going to be a do it do it yourself at home, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what these people are failing to do is failing to make that distinction between these horrible, wicked men and the institutional church and the spotless bride of Christ and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. They're not making that distinction. And that is their terrible, terrible error. And it seems to me it, this isn't a terribly difficult distinction to make if you just sit down and think about it. Um, you know, lumping it all together and saying that a bunch of sodomites, infiltrators, ha- this all being basically, again, a quasi-open secret, then layer on top of that that all this has been prophesied and and revealed that it was going to happen, in fact, multiple times by the mother of God herself. I mean, come on. How, how, can, you, how can you not make this distinction? So um, um, that's Bernadin. So that's Cardinal Joseph Bernadin. He's a Satanist. He goes on. He's shot straight up. He runs the church in the United States. He basically runs the church in the United States, has 100% total dictatorial control over everyone who is elevated to the Episcopacy and is made a bishop in the United States for some 30 years. And then even after he's dead, his, his, um, his circle, his clack remains in power. Now you got to start looking at dates and you got to start saying, okay, who was in charge of things and who elevated Theodore McCarrick to the episcopacy? Well, lo and behold, if you follow these chains back and you match up the dates of the windows of when Bernadine was running the show and all of these faggot bishops, and right now we're in the sweet spot of all that, folks, we're absolutely right in the heart of that window. Almost all of these guys were elevated under Bernadine, no pun intended. Almost all these guys were elevated under Bernadine. Therefore, what does that mean? It means that almost all of them are sodomites. Almost all of them. Certainly in the United States, the same dynamic was happening in Europe as well. Um, I don't know who the specific kingmaker is. I think it was probably more diffuse, but certainly in the United States. So you look at any bishop, any cardinal, you look at when he was elevated, look and see if it was if it was a Bernadine elevation. <sighs> I'm sorry, but odds are, odds are that the guy was and is homosexual, blackmailable. They wanted him in. They wanted to get them all, you know, compromised. They wanted to get the entire Episcopacy compromised. And I will repeat something else that I said that is extraordinarily unpleasant, but it has to be said. This business of the infiltration um, of the episcopacy and also to a certain extent of the of the the priesthood but certainly of the episcopacy transcends the these notions and categories of left right liberal conservative even liberal conservative trad now there aren't there aren't any trad really trad bishops um in the united states they they all say the novus ordo but the the horrible reality is even bishops 
who are conservative and who are loved and, and some of them even go and do old mass stuff and will do old mass confirmations and, and so on and, so, and old mass ordinations. You guys, I'm sorry, but you can't go through life with with rose-colored glasses with these Pollyanna ideas. This infiltration transcends all the left-right, liberal, conservative, all of that. So there are there are plenty, 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 plenty of bishops who are considered to be on the right and who the right to this day, right now, in real time, lauds as being one of the good guys and on our side. And there is gay as Liberace and everyone knows it. It's open secrets too. Um, and, and to, to a certain extent, those guys, oh, the ones who, who hold themselves out publicly as being quote unquote conservative. I mean, you want to talk about blackmailable. I mean, who, who would be shocked at this point if, if, you know, word came out that Supich in, in Chicago was a fag, which, by the way, <coughs> yeah, um, a, a sh- they'd probably throw him a damn coming out party. I mean, it, there would be, and you know, there'd be people going to Nova Sordo ma- Mass all throughout the, the Archdiocese of Chicago talking about how wonderful and brave and inspiring Supich is for being an openly gay man or something like that, if hypothetically that were to happen. And I, I assume that before it's all open that, that that will start happening, that as the anti-church moves further and further and further away and eventually breaks off, that you will, just as you see, look at the Anglicans. Look at the Anglicans. They have openly openly sodomite uh, fake bishops parading around. Um, most of the, the female clergy amongst the Anglicans, again, clergy in quotes, um, all of those, all those women, most of them, the vast majority of them are dykes and, and the vast majority of those are openly dykes. What, what do you think? Of course, it's going to go in that direction. It, that's inevitably where it's going to lead to. Um, it's going to get as bad as it can possibly get. It's going to get so bad that as our Lord said, if he doesn't cut those days short, even the elect, even the elect would be lost if not for him cutting those days short, because it's going to get that bad. So why would you think that there wouldn't at some point be these guys just coming out and saying, I'm, I'm here, I'm queer, I'm proud, and I'm Bishop so-and-so, yay Francis, you know? Of course that's where it's eventually going. So... Another another point about Bernadine, and I should we sh- I'll repost this. I'll send this to you, super nerd, for the show notes. Um, I wrote a piece. I don't know. It's been three, four years ago now. Um, who who paid for Barry Satoro, aka Barack Obama, to get sent to Saul Alinsky um, Community Organizing School back in the eighties. Who paid for that? Who organized that? Um, Bernadine? Bernadine! Yep, absolutely. Bernadine paid for Barack Obama and his indoctrination in the ways of Saul Alinsky in Chicago. So, yeah, it's all completely tied together. Sodomites all run together. Marxist, communists, 
it's all the same. And then what you have to understand is overarching all of that. What what's going back deep back into Europe? That's Freemasonry. And then what's behind Freemasonry and what Freemasonry ultimately leads to always is Satanism. So that that's the hierarchical structure. That's the overarching, you know, layers of of what's going on here. But it's all connected. So let's see. Well, wait a minute. When Bernadine was doing all this work, raising bishops to or or uh, moral degenerates to the bishop prick. Uh-huh. And uh, stuffing the ranks with people of his ilk. Uh-huh. That was under the reign of a pope who is supposed to be canonized. How can that possibly work? Uh-huh. Well, let, let me tell you this. I still pray for the repose of JP2's soul. Let me put it to you that way, because remember who did that. Um, that was done by anti-Pope Bergoglio. I am not at all convinced. I am. I, in fact, I think people have asked us about this. My personal take on um, saints in the church is that the last one that we can be reliably sure about is Padre Pio. I think Pad- Padre Pio checks all of the boxes. He never said the Novus Ordo. He had the stigmata. He bilocated I mean, check, 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 check. And then f- for real, super for real, for real miracles that would have that would have absolutely passed the the devil's advocate and all of that. He would have passed through the old school um, parameters for raising someone to the altars. I think he's the last one. JP2, we need to talk about him. He was a horrible, horrible administrator of the church. He basically just didn't pay attention to anything that was going on because he was completely concerned with developing his persona as basically uh, uh, his cult of personality. A lot of people refer to him as the first game show host pope. Um, and you know, I, that, that gets it across. I think that that kind of pejorative does actually communicate what the dynamic was. He was intensely interested in developing the cult of personality around himself because he wanted to use the cult of personality around himself to bring down the iron curtain for Poland, obviously, and for Eastern Europe. And that was his project. That's what he was about. And so the, the administration of the church, he didn't give a crap about. He just, it was just turn it over to the Roman Curia, which is at this point already heavily infiltrated by fags. And he just shrugs his shoulders and, oh, I'm over here being JP2, I love you, and developing my cult of personality. And admittedly, bringing to helping to bring down the iron curtain but you know in retrospect they're almost 30 years forward from you know the falling of of the the falling of the berlin wall and the fall of the soviet union what we clearly see is that it was just changing changing the name out front on the on the shingle out front and that Obviously, the heirs of Russia are still very, very, very much in force. Um, And that's why I get very frustrated about people who are Vladimir Putin fanboys and 
people who are even dumb enough to to think that that Putin is some sort of a second coming of Constantine and is going to be the salvation of the Christian world. Oh my gosh. People really but, think that? Oh yes. Oh yeah, you've never you've never crossed paths. There's a lot of trads that think that. Um I'm not necessarily a people person all the time, so <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm more I'm more trying to keep up on technology and keep up with my family, so I, I don't have a lot of time. I'm not antisocial. It's just that uh, I, I don't have a lot of time for extracurriculars outside of uh, work and family. So, yep. The bottom line about Putin is that he is an he's an intelligent political tyrant. I mean, he's a dictator. And what he's doing is, admittedly, he's doing lots. He's saying lots of what appear to be you know, Christian based, pro family, et cetera, et cetera, anti sodomite, um, anti abortion, pro big families, so on and so forth. This, this is this is all a complete calculation. He's looking at his own population and realizing that there is a massive amount of of Christian culture in the Orthodox, you know, in the Rus, you know. And so he's seeing that and saying, this is the angle that I need to play, setting myself up against Europe and especially the United States. Well, and this, It's almost a callback to Joseph Stalin because the original point of, of, uh, of communism in Russia was international communism. It was the original no borders, no sovereignty. Uh, everybody, are, are, we're all brothers and um, mm -hmm. equality for all. And it led to all kinds of moral problems as well as killing everybody of any, any, any kind of merit whatsoever. Yep. But originally the idea wasn't to make Russia, but to be proud of mother Russia. And it was, the place was about to collapse completely. And uh, uncle Joe takes over and says, no, Russia is, is going to be great. We're going to build a great red state. And uh, it was just in time for world war two. And uh, there is some theories out there that, um, that Hitler was raised and put into power and armed up specifically to go teach a lesson to Stalin that, hey, you're off off the track. This isn't what communism is all about. You're not supposed to be nationalist. You're supposed to be international. Now, those theories, which I read online, are worth the paper they're printed on, which is to say it's not worth anything. It's just somebody's opinion on the Internet. But it makes you think it's, it's certainly possible. Who, know, who knows with, with these power games? They, well, certain, I mean, they certainly I, weren't playing for the, for the, for the, the, the social kingship of Christ. Uh, no, no. <laughs> and I think I think you bring up a great point. And I think a lot of Americans are so very illiterate that they don't realize they associate communism with intense Russian nationalism. I think that's a great point. And that's not what communism is. Communism, the ultimate goal of communism on paper is eventually, and of course it's all BS, but this is what it says on paper. This is what, you know, Lenin is trying, says that his goal is, is the complete dissolution of the state. No more state at all. So people who would be advocates of uh, what Lenin stood for would, uh, for example, want to abolish ICE and say open borders or no borders? Yes, that is exactly precisely what True communism advocates. Absolutely. I guess it shouldn't be a surprise then that uh, the socialist <laughs> got elected in New York. But I, I'm getting you way off topic. Sorry. 
<laughs> That's quite all right. Well, I think we're kind of exhausting this a little bit. So let me look at my notes here and say if there's, okay, so we've, we've established that if you're a man and another man starts, starts kissing on you, that you need to beat the crap out of them. Check. We got that. Um, they're all blackmailable. And I have a piece about that. And we'll also link to that in the show notes. Check. Uh, history of Bernadine, Satanist, openly homo, oh, also pedophile. So what Bernadine would do, and when I say open secret, I mean, I mean totally open secret. Bernadine being the head of the, basically the head of the church in the U.S. and on paper, formerly the head of the bishop's conference, would go all over the country and make a tour of all of these seminaries, which at this point had all turned into lavender palaces, which mean they were basically just functional bathhouses. And he would roll in and he would show up and he would literally roll in with an entourage of uh, hot young young guys, um, super young seminarians. And it was absolutely, there were no bones about it. It was understood that this was his harem. He traveled with a harem and then he would roll into these seminaries and he was there. He was there for sex with the seminarians. And many of them, like we discussed in the opening, because sodomites are, you know, usurious objectifiers, both, you know, the older ones and the younger ones, many of these seminarians were absolutely clamoring to engage in sodomy with, with men, with Bernadine and men like Bernadine, like for the reasons I said before, because they thought it would help them um, advance their their careers and provide protection for them and also it provided them with protection in the sense of being able to just blackmail everyone uh, blackmail the, the the seminary rector blackmail the local bishop blackmail you know this cardinal who's the head of the church in the u.s and because that's just that's the games that they play i mean do you honestly think that these guys are having are engaging I, I have to stop using the euphemism having sex because having sex involves reproduction sodomites obviously never ever ever have sex they engage in sodomitical activity did you do you honestly think that any of these young guy seminarians are engaging in sodomitical activity with these revolting nasty men and old men like Bernadine, like Uncle Ted McCarrick, do you honestly think that they're looking for some sort of a, quote, love relationship? Come on. Come on. Wake up. It has nothing to do with anything good, normal, holy. They're not grasping at anything good. It's not a misguided um you know, trying to replace a father figure any or anything like that. We all have to grow up and stop assigning these Pollyanna-ish motives to these filthy, disgusting sodomites. These young guys are chasing after these old guys and agreeing to engage in sodomitical acts with them for purely selfish, usurious, objectifying reasons for their own right. They're being, they're using the old man as a piece of meat, just as much as the old man is using them as a piece of meat. And let's see, mandatory priest. Oh, uh, now I think this is where we should segue into, um, this whole premise that, you know, homosexuality, the origins of it are just friendship gone wrong. Um, seeing this, fairly frequently and I'll call out by name the person who's doing it because I've I've called him out you know 
via email, not in person, face to face, obviously, but via email. Um, it's, it's Father Z, it's Father Zulsdorf. This is a thing that I've seen repeatedly over the years that he occasionally brings up on his blog that he says that he's, he's convinced that a lot of quote unquote same sex attraction and, and, and sodomites and sodomy is just somehow friendship that's gone wrong. And I, I have to publicly call this out and call it out by name because this is such a filthy, pernicious lie. Um, I think, I don't think Father Z is lying. I think he is in just enormous error on this point. I think that he is just spectacularly wrong and completely misinformed and probably trying to, um, to cast in the best light he can, um, you know, acquaintances, friendships that he's made over the years. And he spent a lot of time in Rome. He was, he worked in Ecclesia Day. He worked in the Roman Curia for years in the, in the very earliest days of Ecclesia Day. He lived and worked in Rome. And so we obviously met a whole bunch of sodomites. And I think that he's probably trying to, you know, put the best possible spin on it that he can. And I, I just can't let it go because to put to, to say, to say that a person could enter into a friendship with a person of the same sex. And if you become, if your friendship becomes sufficiently close or, or deep that you might somehow descend into sexual perversion because of that, such that you would want to engage in perverse sodomitical acts with your friend just because your friendship became close. I, I, this is just, th the word offensive is really overused in today's society, obviously, but that's the only word I can think of. This notion, this thesis is patently offensive. It is patently offensive. And it's, it's an attack on, on friendship, which is, you know, marriage is obviously under attack. But here's, here's something that people don't talk about, is the, the satanic attack on the paradigm of friendship. Look at today's society. Look at how shallow friendships are. How, um, you know, you look at people's relationships, and even though we have Facebook and all this social media, all that serves to do is to drive people even further apart. And, and it's, it's watering down friendship to the point where, you know, the, I, I'm convinced that there just aren't very many actual, real, genuine friendships left in the world. It, certainly in, in the Western world, in the post-Christian world, I think the problem is more severe among men than it is among women. I still think that there are a higher number of actual friendships among women. But I think where it's a, where friendship is especially under attack, precisely because of the ascendancy of, of sodomy and so forth, is amongst men. I think men are kind of tending to fall for this whole this whole lie that you can't be you can't have a close friendship with another man because that might mean you're a fag 
or this this what I'll call the the father Z thesis that if you do have a friendship with a man and it becomes sufficiently close that you that is somehow putting you at risk to become a sodomite hell no it isn't hell no it isn't what causes sexual perversion diabolical narcissism is what causes sexual perversion the the freely chosen self-purgation of love from the soul dude that's the opposite of friendship that's that's the opposite of authentic friendship authentic friendships including and especially what we're talking about here is with people of the same sex good healthy authentic friendships drive you further away from diabolical narcissism precisely because if you have a good holy friendship with a person of the same sex one of the criteria that you know is this friendship that i have is it a good friendship is that both friends advance in sanctity if both friends are advancing in sanctity what that means is that there's even more charity there's even more love in their soul and so therefore by definition they are moving away from diabolical narcissism and therefore by definition they are moving away from the possibility from even the possibility of sexual perversion and certainly of engaging in anything sexually perverse with the person who is your friend if you truly love someone and this goes to the core thesis that we need to talk about with regards to sodomy of all shapes and sizes be it between two men two women or sodomitical acts that happen in a heterosexual context even even I'll take it a step further sodomitical acts that that occur in a heterosexual context context between a man and a woman who are validly married to each other oh don't think that doesn't happen don't think that doesn't happen of course it does oral sex is a species of sodomy most people in the world today most married people christian catholic whatever whatever category you want to put on most married people today engage in oral sodomy um lots and lots of married people in that call themselves christian and even catholic engage in anal sodomy um that is going through the roof and that's going through the roof because of pornography because both men and women are watching this pornography that's being produced and after a while you have to do things that are more and more and more disgusting and perverted in order to get the rush when you're watching pornography and one of the first steps that people take is engaging in anal sodomy so this is even happening between heterosexual people who are validly married to each other so going oh the more you love someone be it a friend or be it a spouse or you know uh, uh, even if you're courting if a man and a woman are just courting the more you love someone the more incapable you should be of not only not only actually engaging in a sexually perverse act with them um the the less capable you should be of even thinking about engaging in a sexually perverse act with them how could you do something so disgusting so violent so degrading so objectifying to someone that you love 
the more love there is in a relationship, the less possibility, the less room there is for any kind of perverse sexual act, you see? And so that's why all of this James Martin talk about, oh, love is love, and, you know, it's just a different form of love. That's that's such a complete and total lie. It's a complete and total lie. If two men actually loved each other, um, they would be physically incapable. They, they would be incapable of even getting an erection because the thought of performing such a vile, disgusting act on a person that they actually loved would be a total buzzkill and you wouldn't even be able to hold an erection. You said that's, and that's the truth. That's the truth of the matter. And so, you know, that's where, so back to the Father Z thesis, this whole notion that guys fall into sodomy or women fall into, into lesbianism because they were just too close of friends and, you know, some wires got crossed and it just kind of all went wrong somehow because they were too good of friends. Uh, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, but this, this has to be called out. This is absolutely horrible. It is completely wrong. Just bah, stop, stop. And if, if he ever mentions that on his blog again, I would strongly encourage the, the, the commentary out there to call him out on it. And I will, too, if I ever see it again, because it's it's so offensive and it's so wrong. And it's exactly the opposite of the truth of what needs to be of how we need to be educating people about this enormous question of sexual perversion and what its roots are. And we have answers. This business of just keep constantly talking and talking and and seeing how sexual perversion is just taking over our culture and no one on our side can give any intelligent explanation of this and just getting railroaded by the, well, I was born that way. Hell no, you weren't born that way. Good heavens, good heavens, no one is born that way. This is a pathology. It is a psycho-spiritual pathology. We can say what it is, why it happens, the criteria by which it happens, the chain of events, things that cause people to engage in this freely chosen self-purgation of love, sexual abuse, um, detachment from the father, being deified as a child, etc., 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 obsession with elitism, all of these things. We have all these explanations. We can explain this. We don't have to just sit there and so, you know, the sodomites say, well, why am I gay? And we just sit here and say, humana, 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 I don't know. And then the, and then the fag says back, well, I was born that way. And you're racist. if you, if you say anything else than that, and the only response it's made is humana, 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 this has to stop. And on this topic of, of what, you know, the whole idea of being born gay and whatnot, um, I don't know if we've mentioned, um, the one Peter five podcast before on this show, but, uh, Back in May 22nd, uh, the, the host of the, of the podcast interviewed um, uh, Joseph Chambra, and he talks specifically mm-hmm. about the whole idea of being born gay. And this is somebody with, with a, a uh, unique insight into, into this topic, and he just proceeds to destroy the notion of being born gay. And he yep. gives some, some insights into how you, know, you can mismanage the raising of, of, of a boy to open him up to that, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, I mean, for somebody who who has gone the darkest road, one of the darkest roads possible on that side of the the lifestyle, and then renounce it, and yeah. and um, 
he's he's quite an advocate for trying to get people out of that lifestyle and and, and it's God bless him for the work he's doing. I mean, yeah. it's, it's he's he's an invaluable resource precisely because he has been to the absolute depths. I mean, I read, I went on his on his website and I read, you know, s- several of his very long pieces describing his backstory, and I was shaken. I I mean, I he described things that shocked and scandalized me. And I mean, you know, I obviously I haven't, <laughs> I know physically a lot of the things that these people do, but there were things that he described that were so dark and so evil that I was shaken after, after reading them. And so I think Joseph Chambra is someone that really needs to be, needs to be held up in prayer because he, the work he is doing and the insight that he has is so valuable that one can only imagine that Satan must just be super duper duper um, invested in, in tearing Joseph Chambre down. Um, and anything, you know, any work that he does any information that he gets out and every time he writes something and every testimony that he gives and explains these dynamics to people, you know, Satan has just got to be absolutely enraged with him. And so he needs a hedge of protection around him. And we all need to remember Joseph Chambra in prayer. Well, and, but and it's not, not just the work he's doing, but where he's doing it too. I mean, he, he goes into the gay district in San Francisco to yeah. minister to the people there. I mean, you're basically in hell's vestibule at that point. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, he did, he did, what's it called? The Folsom street fair. And I think, I think it's in the spring. And I just remember seeing a little blurb that he said that they had passed out I don't know how many rosaries and they had their table set up and wow. I mean, that to me is almost even scarier than, you know, like going into Dearborn, Michigan or something like that, because there's a, there's a satanic element in that, in that sodomite culture that I find to be even more, uh, that, that I think is even darker and and more intimidating, more frightening even than the Islamic culture. I mean, we we pretty much know what the Musloids are about. Um, I think that there's a there's a level of darkness and a level of craftiness and a level of patience, manipulativeness, and we're seeing that right now, obviously, with with the infiltration of the church um, that, that that these people are capable of, and. Um, not to say that obviously Islam isn't exactly the same thing there because, you know, obviously they're liars, they're commanded to lie, they're commanded to be manipulative and so forth. But boy, the, the sodomy thing, when you get when you get into some of that stuff and read about what Chambra was involved in there in San Francisco, it's just, oh my gosh, those people are capable of anything, anything. And that's even scarier. I think that's even scarier. So... That's my rant on that. Where are we on the old uh, on the old clock, Super Nerd? Uh, an hour and ten minutes. Well, there you go. We are just about average. Um, do we want to save mandatory priestly celibacy? I think we should because I need. I think I could talk about that for at least forty-five minutes, and that would just make us way too long. And I know you've got a little cough, and you've got a tiny princess, and 
you need to probably wrap her up. So yeah, in fact, the cough. I, I, I don't know if it's directly related to Tiny Princess, but uh, yeah, it's she's she's doing okay, I guess. I mean, people you know, people born with her uh, health condition only one percent survive to six months, and tomorrow is three months. So okay, she has outlived the odds already, but mm-hmm. um, I. I don't think she's going to make it to six months. Uh, 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 honestly, it just she's pr- continuing. Ironically, uh, with, with this condition, holoprosencephaly, uh, it, it's a malformation of the brain. And mm-hmm. and um, the more the more healthy somebody is, you know, from the neck down, the doctors say she's fine and she's growing. Uh, you've seen some of the pictures. She's got really yeah. healthy fat rolls and everything. The problem is she's growing at a normal rate, and the brain can't keep up with it. And that's why uh-huh. the morbidity is so high in six months. Now, if she makes it past six months, who knows? I mean, it, it, it's you're you're so far beyond uh, the statistical measures at that point. It's like you can't put any kind of guess on it at that point because only three percent are born alive, and that's not counting. Actually, I have no idea how much abortion comes into account on that. But just the 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 problem with with uh, not having two hemispheres of the forebrain, um, the the fetus can't properly form to even be born alive. Mm-hmm. So only 3% with this condition before birth are born alive. So that put her in the top 97% right there. Mm-hmm. And then from, from birth to six month, only 1% make it. So good grief. The fact that we've been, we've had this much, this long to wrap her in her love really just, it, it has been blessing upon blessing. And, you know, I'm, I'm just being a sad, pitiful, you know, wimp <laughs> to complain <laughs> about the fact that I don't get any sleep, but it does happen that, um, you know, occasionally I end up, you know, being sick and having to sleep. And, and, um, um, I, at the, this week, actually, Super Mom's got it a lot worse than me because, uh, she's had to pull essentially a couple of, a couple of all nighters, uh, because I've been <laughs> sick. And, um, she's, we've, we've got help tonight and help this weekend. So, ah, uh, that'll be, that's good for her. And then actually, she's going to a homeschooling conference for, um, on, on Monday and Tuesday. So, uh, that, oh, that'll, that'll be, be nice to get out of the house a little bit. And yes, yeah. I, I, I hope I hope she's able to uh, relax <laughs> and get some sleep and and not be in constant state of worry about what things are going on back at the at the house. Um, so, um, well, the tiny princess apostolate, the earthly phase of it, will go on for exactly as long as the divine providence has foreseen. And then in all likelihood, well, we all, we all will, will, uh, <laughs> we are, we're all going to die. And when, when she does die, whether it's in a few weeks, a few months, a few years, a few decades, when she does die, as you have, have reminded us and reminded all of your other younglings, She's baptized, she's confirmed, and she is incapable of offending God. She will enter into the beatific vision, and then you all will have your own saint. And I dare say that all of all of the folks out there, both people, you know, in your local community, she's made lots and lots and lots of acquaintances in the local community, and she's been on the internet, and she has how many, I don't know, how many thousands of people know about Tiny Princess. There, there have when, been donations to Super Nerd specifically, or to Super Nerd Media specifically citing her and and um, one, one person in the first couple of weeks that she was born said, hey, you know, I, I'm from an Italian family. If I was local, we'd bring food. So since I can't be there, he sent a, a really generous donation and other people specifically citing her 
Uh, so there, there's definitely been some some uh, support with that, and and uh, we definitely. Well, put, there's lots of other people who have just been lifting you all up in prayer. And the thing that's so cool is that she will enter into the beatific vision. We know that. I mean, that's not any sort of a presumptuous thing for any of us to say, like if like if Anne said, oh, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I mean, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. I'm a terrible, terrible, terrible sinner. So that's that's an incredibly presumptuous thing to say. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You know what? Tiny princess, the St. Paul's words about working out your salvation in fear and trembling, those those words no longer apply to her because you and Super Mommy, obviously, you baptized her within seconds of her being born. Um, she's confirmed and she's incapable of, of offending God. She's incapable of personal sin. And the other thing that's so cool to remember about her is that when she does enter the beatific vision, she isn't going to be a little baby with this. How do you pronounce her, um, her condition? Hollow prosencephaly. Hollow prosencephaly. She won't be a tiny little baby with hollow prosencephaly. She's going to be how how would you phrase it she will be well you know, i think her, the saints have said that itself, yeah the, the glorified body is at the at, at uh, physical prime whatever that is some 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 saints say that it's 33 years of age um mm-hmm. it's going to be at, at at physical apex so yeah so don't don't think guys that when these these little babies die that they're just they're that in the beatific vision that they're tr- that they're limited in any way by their infancy because they're not because you know that soul that rational intellect is is a fully mature person and so then what super nerd super mommy all the siblings everybody all of us what we have to look forward to is that if we make it to the beatific vision not only will we be will be able to contemplate the triune Godhead from the inside, as if that's not enough, we'll get to meet Tiny Princess, and she'll be this uh, fully mature, rational intellect in her prime, um, and she won't have any of the of the you know any of the issues, any of the, obviously any of the, the deformations or any of the, the problems that she has now, and she'll be fully mature. So super nerd and super mommy will be able to converse with her about (laughs) their whole lives and so on and so forth. And the other thing is, is while super nerd and super mommy are, are still alive and all, all the siblings and everything, when tiny princess has entered into the beatific vision, like for example, super nerd, super nerd is going to be able to, to talk to his daughter in prayer and talk to her about his job, talk to her about (laughs) whatever your concerns are with regards to your job, like computer programming or whatever it is because she's in the beatific vision. She's going to have all of that, all of that knowledge, all of that information. And so there's nothing in super nerd's life that he won't be able to talk to his daughter about once she enters into the beatific vision in prayer. And that that's a pretty remarkable thing too. So it's just consolations all around. We obviously, we want her to stay and we want maximum snuggling, but 
then again, whatever the divine providence, whatever the divine providence wants, that's, that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. Maximum snuggling for now, but I've said tongue in cheek. It's like, what in the world does God have in store for me that I need to have a saint write my own family to help, help get me through it. (laughs) If if that's, if that's what God has in mind for me, then bring it on. Okay. (laughs) Give me all the the, the helps we can get, but, uh, it's, it's, it's tongue in cheek, but it's also, you know, God gives us the preparation we need before we need it. So that's right. You know, some, sometimes this is preparation for a, a future cross. Maybe, maybe it's for her siblings. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it's reasonable to assume with things that are going on, it's reasonable to, um, it is not unreasonable to anticipate that our lives within the next years to decades are going to not be as easy and as comfortable as they are now, put it to you that way, put it to you that way. So I was going to say, you can say that again, but I I guess you did. Yep. (laughs) All right, mister, let's wrap it up and let's get you some shut eye. Okay. Uh, the Barnhart podcast is what we're doing right now. (laughs) I'm reading the title line. Okay. I'm, I'm a little, I'm halfway out of it. Um, yes, the, the document I'm looking at is called Barnhart Podcast Wrap. The email address for the podcast, where you want to, if you want to heckle me for reading the document wrong, uh, you can send feedback, comments, suggestions, or anything else really to podcast at barnhart.biz. Uh, masses for Anne's benefactors. If you're hearing this podcast, then there is was a mass offered for Anne's benefactors today, seven days a week plus the Requiem Mass weekly. Please take a moment to join your uh, prayers with the intentions of the priests who are offering these masses. Don't forget that these priests are human as well. They need our, our prayers. And uh, they have to go to confession just like the rest of us, so please pray for them. Yep. The Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this podcast or in previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com slash donate for more details. And that's what Sandy, Donald, Marco, PMJ... Uh, they did that all online, and then James, Richard, and Carol sent something to the P.O. Box. So thank nice. you very much for your support. And uh, a personal note here, or not I shouldn't say personal, um, my web hosting provider sent me an email saying they are going to shut off, you know, it's, it's going to be a few months out, uh, the ability to do catch-all email addresses. So if any of you out there are system admins who know how to set up an email server to handle uh, just forwarding is all I need, honestly, uh, and, and it's catch-all forwarding. And if that didn't make any sense to you, what I just said, just ignore it. But for the four of you who understood what that is, please email me because I, I think I'm going to have to set up an email server probably on a VM somewhere out on the Internet and uh, handle that because the, the catch-all stuff is pretty crucial to a lot of the stuff I do. In fact, even, even on, on this podcast, there, there is no email box for email at supernerdmedia.com. It's all forwarding to a Gmail account. So, um if anyone knows how to set up an email server, please contact me. I, I could appreciate that. And cool. I'll let you talk about Matthew 1720. Matthew 1720 intention is full fasting twice a week. The way I phrase the intention is that anti-Pope Bergoglio be public, publicly acknowledged and removed as anti-Pope and the whole anti-papacy be nullified, that Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger be publicly recognized as being the one and only living Pope and having been the one and only living Pope all along since he, since he became the Pope in 2005, that Ber, anti-Pope Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace and achieve the beatific vision, and that 
likewise, Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger, repent, die in a state of grace, and achieve the beatific vision. No where knot is too great for Unlady. Where they can all have conversations about theology with Tiny Princess. With Tiny Princess, and she will be the one who's teaching them, I'm quite sure. Uh, <laughs> no, all will be being taught by the Triune Godhead himself, probably the Holy Ghost. I think that's probably the third person's domain right there. Absolutely. Um, so that's the Matthew 17, 20 intention. And then for me, the stale Big Mac initiative and super nerd keeps telling me that I need to rebrand the stale Big Mac initiative, but I don't know. We might, we might be in too deep by now, but that is me looking to develop a broader base of low denomination, um, subscribers slash donors. Um, again, got to say thank you to the extremely munificent donors that I have. God bless you. God bless you. But what the Stale Big Mac initiative is about is that low denomination, broad spectrum, you know, getting 1% of the listenership to donate Stale Big Mac or, you know, two Stale Big Macs per month, something or like fresh that. Big Mac. <laughs> Super Nerd wants me to change it to Fresh Big Macs because Super Nerd says that they throw the stale ones away for nothing. So, uh, okay, just a Big Mac. Then. <laughs> but that's what the stale Big Mac, and, or that's what the Big Mac initiative is about. And that's why the little picture of the Big Mac now shows up occasionally on blog posts and on the podcast. So, and again, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, and be assured of my prayers. And that's all I have, Super Nerd. Uh, that's all I've got, too, for this week. So until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. God bless.